Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Back in 1979, 1980, there were plenty of people who still thought that hip-hop was a fad. But not my guest Russell Simmons. He knew it was real and it was here to stay. And it's made him very, very successful. I believed in Curtis Blow. I believed in Houdini. I believed in Jimmy Spicer. I believed in Fearless Four. I believed in all of these guys. You know, some lasted longer than others, but... I believed, you know, and we made that movie. Crush Groove was about a. Remember the movie? It was about sure. a, a manager and his artists, and you know, the artists. I mean, and the I family. was two years old at the time, but I've seen it since. Right, but you know, that was the point. We believed, and um, and I, and I think that's what it takes in anything. I learned a lesson from that experience. You know, having faith in your vision, that is stuck with me. You know, and every business I've taken on has taken a lot longer than the business plan, and has been faced with more obstacles, and mostly have been. Uh, investments in white spaces where people don't know what it is in the first place. Everything from financial services to poetry to a lot of the investment to doing a show about a reverend and 5A students. No one liked these ideas. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Russell Simmons. He helped found Def Jam Recordings and basically helped start hip-hop. He once argued that the Beastie Boys shouldn't dress up as hip-hop guys with matching jumpsuits. He said they should wear the same clothes they did after they were a punk rock band. I always like to promote authentic and honest things because they have more stable, lasting kind of impressions. And he'll talk about why he did drugs. That's why everybody uses drugs. Make the noise stop. And why he started meditating. The reason we meditate, to make the noise stop. Then later on in the show, are you a music snob? Carl Wilson says we choose music partly on how good it is, but also as an act of self-definition. A lot of these taste choices are ways to differentiate ourselves from what we might feel like is a lower status kind of identity or, you know, something that we're a little fearful of being contaminated by. Wilson decided to drop the snobbery and... He ended up in Las Vegas at a Celine Dion concert. And you probably know what a lowrider is, but what do you know about lowrider oldies? I'll tell you about the perfect music for driving low and slow. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So the interview that we're about to hear with Russell Simmons has some language that might be inappropriate for younger listeners. And we talk a little bit about drugs and stuff. Um, We have actually, we have bleeped out the words that are illegal to say on the radio. But just be warned that in case you have any younger listeners with you or or whatever, you you might want to take that under advisement. Russell Simmons is one of the few people who can honestly say that they built hip-hop. He was a party promoter in the era of the rapping DJ before rhyming was the responsibility of a separate guy. He managed Curtis Blow, the first rapper ever to sign with a major label. He helped build Def Jam Recordings, still the most powerful label in hip-hop 30 years later. 
His other ventures, like the clothing lines Fat Farm and Argyle Culture, his financial services firm, his film and television production company, have made him even more wealthy. In his book, Success Through Stillness, Meditation Made Simple, he argues that what makes him happy isn't all that money. It's his longstanding commitment to meditation and yoga. His goal is to make meditation simple and, frankly, not embarrassing enough that anyone can or will do it. I spoke to Russell Simmons last year. Uh, Russell, it is really great to have you on Bullseye. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure to be here. I was listening to you on the uh, Combat Jack show, uh, which is a great, uh, great podcast out of New York. And one of the things you were talking about was promoting in the hip hop scene in the 70s, before Rapper's Delight came out, before hip hop and rapping were a national thing that everybody Mm-hmm. knew about. Um, when was the first time that you heard an MC? It was Charles Gallery in 1977, and uh, DJ Eddie Chiba. Uh, it was actually DJ Easy G and rapper Eddie Chiba, and they were, it was phenomenal. It was like it was 138th Street in Harlem. Um, on Lenox Avenue, and that was Charles Gallery, and the artist was Eddie Chiba. How old were you? 20, maybe. I don't know, 21. What were you up to at that time in your life? I was a college student, and I was hustling a little bit, you know, like like I was selling coca leaf incense. Um, so but I, I was a little hustler, like a little street hustler in, in a school as a student. I, I want to play a little clip of uh, Eddie Chiba performing. But wait, but aren't we here talking about meditation? We're going to get there. We got an hour. Just keep your body and stay on the floor. We're going to do it a little like an eel. We continue all with the music, y'all. It's time for you to be real. You see, a while ago, but I want you to know just who you've been listening to. Just listen to me now while I tell you how, who I am and what I do. Five, nine and a half, bow-legged ass you ever want to see. Just look up on the stage, baby, doll. I'm talking about little old me. It's Chiba, girl, and I'm so glad that you came on. Oh, my goodness. Eddie Chiba. How do you feel when you listen to that? It's kind of, I hadn't heard anything like that in so long. It's great. I mean, he was the first person I saw perform, you know, and he was an amazing performer, one of the top two, if not the top. He and, Eddie, and DJ Hollywood, in my estimation, were the ones who made the most noise back then, and... He was, a, he was a superstar in the hood. I mean, we loved him, and we still do. I mean, he has his 30-year anniversary party, 35-year anniversary party, something coming up now. So and I, I just spoke to him, so that's cool. I have not heard him rap like that. I don't know when, you know, so that's cool. Was there, like, a circuit of clubs that you could book these guys into? No, no. You had to book a ballroom or the Hotel Diplomat on 43rd Street or— you could book sometime the chalet ballroom, but you couldn't really book a club. They didn't like you in the clubs. You know, they didn't like hip-hop in, like, the R&B clubs, wherever adult blacks were. You couldn't go because you were grimy and ghetto, and they were sophisticated and polished, so you weren't really allowed. And so the whole hip-hop thing was like a rebellion to the, the mainstream phenomena of disco, which had taken over New York completely. Like, you turn on black radio, you hear... I Love America by Patrick Juvet, you know, or YMCA by Village People. That's what you'd hear. That was black radio. Why do you think that... I think a lot of people went to those parties and said, oh, I want to be a rapper. Oh, I want to be a B-boy. You know, whatever it was, 
they wanted to they wanted to do that thing that they saw on stage. I did too a little bit, but I just couldn't. So I did what I could. <laughs> I wanted people to hear rappers. I wanted people to see b boy and you know what I mean. I was like I just loved it the whole cultural thing. So I just wanted to work with the artists and help them do what they did. Who was the first artist that you managed? The first one was Curtis Blow. How did you pick Curtis Blow? Uh, or did he pick you? Well, I, he promoted with me parties with Hollywood and Chiba and everything, and he was cool DJ Kurt. And Eddie Chiba was so big, we named Kurt Curtis Blow. So Curtis Blow had a really impre- and has a really impressive quality about him. Did you see that at the yeah, time? Yeah, no question. Was Christmas Rapping the first record that you cut? Yes. Christmas Rapping was the first record. It was on the shelf when Rapper's Delight came out. Let's take a listen to a little bit of it. Don't you give me all that jive about things you wrote before eyes alive. Cause this ain't 1823, ain't even 1970. Now I'm the guy named Curtis Blow, and Christmas is one thing I know. So every year, just about this time, I celebrate it with a rhyme. Now, Russell, Curtis Blow sells the heck out of that record. But, um... You know, it's it's not exactly gritty street wisdom. Well, you know, the second half of it was more like a traditional hip-hop record, whatever that was, because there had never been any. And the first half, half was the Christmas thing, you know, and it was produced by J.B. Moore. And those lyrics up top were written by J.B. Moore, which was kind of a, a a funny thing. But, you know, it was a way in, and it was a rap record, and it was cool. And the second half of it was even more cool. Um it's where we were at the time, you know. I wanted to do Bob James's Mardi Gras and let him just spit rhymes, but uh, I took that piece of wisdom and we collaborated. It was a lot of creative aggravation between myself and the producers. Next thing I know, I was on a plane to Amsterdam. You know, I had never been anywhere. I had never been anywhere. I'm on a first-class flight to Amsterdam where the record was really hot. It was an amazing experience. They, they, I remember landing and the, and the president of the company met me at the airport. He said, would you like Mr. Simmons? Like, I didn't know who to talking to. <laughs> I said, I'd like some cocaine and some <laughs> He said, no problem. <laughs> so anyway, that was my first plane ride, and that was the first record. Yeah, Christmas rapping. I think that's the answer that you get when you are definitely in the record industry in 1979. <laughs> oh, yes. No problem. <laughs> if you got a hit record, the answer is no problem. <laughs> so how did you work a hip-hop record then when... Most of the world was convinced that hip-hop was a cute thing that was fun, but wasn't a cultural force. It was just a, it was just a funny thing to do over a disco record. Well, well, we had faith in the artists, and we did things that were artist-friendly versus music record-friendly. The whole record business was uh, filled with dance records with artists who were throwaways. So there was not a lot of artist development at all. So when we did the breaks, his second record, we put his picture on it, and we called him the king of rap. We were starting a brand-building process because we knew he was, a, he was a performance artist, not just a record artist. And all of the artists at the time were performance artists, and they all deserved better treatment than the disco artists. And that's why we built Def Jam, because we had a a belief system that was, you know, different from the music industry. And we wanted to treat our artists uh, and have a whole branding experience with them, you know, and branding exercise go on with them and and build them into lasting, stable artists. Curtis Blow's probably in Europe somewhere doing that intro. 
in in like 1980, 1981, 1982, in the space in between hip hop exploding and uh, you starting Def Jam, um, you had a reputation as one of the only people out there who could work a hip hop record, who could work a hip hop artist for that matter, because the record company guys didn't know anything about it. Even Sugar Hill, which was probably the most successful hip hop label at the time, was run by a, a woman who was just like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. They're selling records. You know, bring in your friend. Great. We'll cut them. Um, what were what were you doing with those records? Well, I would take them from the punk rock clubs to the South Bronx, and every place in the middle, we'd have to skip over all the pop mainstream kind of clubs where they wouldn't play rap. The radio used to say, all music, no rap. I mean, as we got a little more advanced, as more rap records came out, it became such a nuisance, an embarrassment to the R&B community that they would say things like that on the radio. All music, no rap. You know? So we we would, like, like all of rock and roll critics loved and embraced this whole new phenomenon. So the Mud Club and the Peppermint Lounge and the, the World and uh, Danceteria. And I, there's a lot of clubs downtown. And uptown in the Bronx, there's 371 and, and um, Harlem World and Charles Gallery and Smalls Paradise and, you know, the Disco Fever, you know. So there's a lot of clubs uptown in the Bronx and in Harlem and a lot of clubs downtown in the East Village. And we would go to the places that cared. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Russell Simmons. He founded Def Jam Recordings and recently wrote a book on meditation, which is available in paperback this week. It's called Success Through Stillness. He's very excited to talk about it. Are we going to talk about meditation? We are. We're going to talk about it, Russell. You don't have to worry about it. I want to play a song for you, Russell, by Tila Rock. This is probably... It's a- yours. That's that Rick Rubin made. Let's hear it. Commentating, illustrating, description giving, adjective the musical myth seeking people of the universe this is yours it's yours do you like it do you want it well if you had it would you flaunt it well it's yours Russell do you remember the first time that you heard this record it was a uh, um, a time when it seemed like everything on the radio I was managing. Then I hear this record that jumps out, and it's it's phenomenal. It's, and the track was hot, and, it, and I went to DJ Red Alert, who sent me to DJ Jazzy J, and Jazzy J took me to Rick Rubin. And Rick Rubin was sitting in a dorm in NYU, and that's how I met Rick. And, and you're like 25, 26. He's like 20 or 21, something, something like that. Something like that. Maybe a little younger, and maybe both a little younger probably. Did you expect when you met Rick Rubin that that beat and that production came from a weird white college student? No, I didn't expect that. But I wasn't as surprised as as Rick always says. He was so shocked. And maybe I did seem more shocked uh, than I actually was. And it was cool. But he's such a great producer and he was like very personable. And and we talked a lot about his bands. You know, he's a member of the Beastie Boys at the time and he's their DJ and... Did he have to convince you to start a record label? Did you want to be no, in he, the record business? Yeah, he business? did, actually. No, I was, what? I was already starting a record company, a Rush Records, with Steve Babowski at EMI Records had a Rush label, and we were going to make a deal. And then Rick wanted to make a record company, too, and I was a manager. I was like, I don't know if I can you. I mean, I can't, you know, all right, I'll give you half the money. So I gave him half the money, and we started, you know, 
putting out records, the first record being I Need a, I Need a Beat by LL Cool J. And that record came out and it was, you know, people were selling it. They know what was in the box. It didn't even have like a catalog number, right? Nothing. So that was our first experience. And then we kept having little, little experiences like that. So by the time it came to make a record company, we already had one. You want to buy a company from Russell Simmons, let's do Def Jam. And we did. Your brother is Run from Run DMC. He was, yeah, he was the son of Curtis Blow. And before I, we made records. He was yeah. the DJ. He would cut air. He cut so fast. So he and Run DMC were broke through internationally wearing Adidas jumpsuits and shells. So it was a very different thing to go from, you know, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five in crazy leather jumpsuits um, or in Indian headdresses or whatever, these wild stage costumes. Well, no, but we also would have run DMC rock, like their leather suits that they wore. Remember that? And the shell toes and the velour hats. That was like a Brooklyn official ghetto outfit, right? So it's, it's Queens, Brooklyn, but it's like that outfit was so hood, but yet it was so costumey. You wanted to accentuate what was cool and authentic, but you wanted to stand out. So that's kind of what we did. You know, we kind of like wanted to keep everything 100%. I thought it was interesting that you were the voice in in Def Jam and in your management company that argued that the Beastie Boys, when the Beastie Boys came out, shouldn't dress in uh, matching sweatsuits. They should dress like they dressed when they were a punk rock band. We've been doing that from from beginning in music. I always like to promote authentic and honest things because they have more stable, lasting kind of impressions. So I've always been kind of that that uh, concerned with brand building in that way. I mean, I always wanted to build something that could last, that was honest, and that was my experiences back then. And uh, with the Beasties as well, yeah. I think one of your greatest skills as an entrepreneur and as a as an activist as well is that you've always been really focused on building connections between people. And I like that. I wonder if that was a skill that came easily to you because I think for a lot of folks who come out of uh, an underprivileged background, it's a lot to ask them to to learn someone else's culture at the same time as they're trying to get out of their, you know, whatever circumstances. I enjoy... Um, putting people together. I like to see cultures come together. I feel like they all have the same aspirations and inspirations even. And and we all we all go to work every day looking for this quiet seat. And we want to be uh we want to be comfortable, not needy, right? We all have the same aspiration to operate without without any neediness, to be alive and awake and to be conscious. We all want that, whether we know it or not. So everything we do, every drug we take, every dollar we make, every new car we buy, is the promotion of short-term stillness, happiness. Knowing that, knowing that we all have that, I like to put people in a box together and see what, they, what they're going to do. What are you going to do? You want the same thing. So I've been, that's been a, a mission of mine and, I, and, and culture as well. Like, you know, melody is a melody. It doesn't matter what kind of music it is. It's a beautiful melody. Sucks the mind in, you know, to that kind of quietness. How did meditation enter your life? Well, I started with yoga. I went because there were so many chicks 20 years ago, and I went to yoga. There was, no, no, there was only a couple of gay guys and 38, I mean, 58 girls, two gay guys, me and Bobby Thriver. But then I came out. I was so high. 
It was unbelievable. I was so high and I was so happy. And I went every day after that. Do you think that the practice of yoga and meditation for you um, serves a similar role in your life to uh, what your drug use did when you were a heavy yeah, it's drug same, I mean, it's the same intention to quiet the mind. That's why everybody uses drugs, to make the noise stop. The reason we meditate, to make the noise stop. All of our efforts are designed to make so that we can have single-pointed focus or let the mind settle. You know, they say, be still and know. Um, you know, and the Buddhists have nirvana, and the Christians have Christ consciousness, and the Muslims have taqwa. Everybody's got a, you know, every prophet had a a space of union uh, or yoga, state of yoga, that we're all chasing. The more you acknowledge, that's really all you're looking for. And I think that's... Um, not only what my book's about, it's what life's about, period. That's it in life. That's nothing else. No matter how rich you are, you can sit your ass in only one seat at a time. And no matter how much stuff you acquire, none of it will help you with happiness. But the less you need of the stuff, the happier you will be. I'm looking at you sitting across from me. Yeah. And I see you pu- <laughs> he, pulling on the chair yeah. and working your legs around and, you know, pulling behind the, your head and, you know, crossing your arms and uncrossing your arms as you talk and tugging on your hat. <laughs> and I imagine that it must be, it must have been, especially when you started practicing. My name is Rush, for God's exactly. sake. <laughs> Extraordinarily difficult for you to. I don't have sit, as calm a spirit as you, sit, but I'm sit working on it. in one chair in a literal sense, much less sit in one chair in a metaphorical sense. I sit with, you know, and I almost feel like I don't breathe twice a day for 20 minutes each time. And I move through moving meditation every day for an hour and a half. And it's helpful for a guy named Rush. So, but I don't believe, see, people think, oh, you're going to be quiet. You're going to relieve yourself of anxiety. Then how are you going to move? Move fast. But let your mind be quiet. That's the thing. It's not about, so people, you don't, you don't do less work. You do more work. You do twice the work with half the energy. And I think that's you know, why I'm, I want people to meditate and make it about needing nothing, which is the same, right? State of needing nothing is super rich. And a and whole book was bent on simplifying and even quoting the Bhagavad Gita often and, and simplifying the translations of the scripture. And that's what super rich is, a simplification of the yogic philosophy. I think the state of being a great creator is similar to the state that you are describing. You know, like if, if, I, hear, um, if I hear that kind of... Um, you know that flow, that lack of self-awareness, that um, peace, in, in, internal peacefulness. You know, those are also the things that I would use to describe many great artists. You know, Jay Z at his best. I would, I would use those same. Jay's things to a little describe. funny because he ain't like. I like, remember Jay Z and DMX at the same time. I signed them both same time. I was part of it. You know, my team, my company, and they were both about equal to my eyes back then. Jay Z honed his talent. And DMX did things that were not helpful or hurtful to his growth. And um, you see the difference. You know, it's like how do you handle your entourage? How do you handle your relationship with the world? How much of it do you take in? How much do you leave alone? And how do you, you know, keep honing it down and keeping your head down? Jay-Z is the best example I've ever seen. 
guy who didn't lose it at all, not even for a minute. Russell Simmons, his book, Success Through Stillness, Meditation Made Simple, is available now in paperback. After a break, I'll talk to music journalist Carl Wilson about his book, Let's Talk About Love, Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Since you're listening to Bullseye, I think you'll really like NPR's newest podcast, Hidden Brain. On the latest episode, Shankar Vedantam looks at the consequences of near misses and the surprising way these losses can motivate us. Plus, country singer Casey Musgraves joins Shankar to talk about her new album and play a game of Mad Scientist. Don't miss it. Listen now on the NPR One app, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, L.A., Boston, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Philly, D.C. Bullseye is going on the road this November for our world tour of several American cities. See live interviews, music, comedy, and more. Check out bullseyetour.com for more information and get your tickets starting Friday, September 25th. That's bullseyetour.com. See you there. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In 1997, Elliot Smith was nominated for an Oscar. It was unusual. He was an indie rock hero, uncomfortable on any stage, much less a stage with an audience of 40 million, just in the U.S. When Smith performed, music critic Carl Wilson was rooting for him. Smith was standing in the middle of the stage, looking a bit lost, and playing an acoustic guitar. Do you miss me? Miss Of course, the competition that year was close to unbeatable, a juggernaut of the middle brow, one of the most popular and one of the most reviled artists in pop music history, Celine Dion, who took the stage, incidentally, on a recreation of the Titanic. Carl Wilson was watching the Oscars that night, and he found himself wondering why he loved Elliot Smith and detested Celine Dion, or at least told people that. Maybe it was his problem. Wilson was already a Quebecer, closer than most to the epicenter of Celine's global reach, so he immersed himself in her world. The result was a book called Let's Talk About Love, Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. It doesn't just examine Celine's triple diamond album, although it does examine that. It also questions what taste is and why we care so much about it. I spoke to Carl Wilson last year. Carl Wilson, it is so great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Gosh, uh, I I was trying to think of where to start, but let's start with why you thought it would be a good idea to write a book, not just about Celine Dion and not just about that record, but about taste. Like, What was interesting to you about examining what taste is? Well, you know, by the time I wrote the book, which was, you know, almost 10 years after that Oscar night, um, I'd been working as a music critic um, as part of my career um, for quite a while at that point. And I was more and more questioning what the 
objective basis, if anything, uh, for the opinions I was offering and the analyses I was offering was, and why I had more authority by any stretch of the imagination to judge a piece of music or a piece of art than other people did, and, and then why anybody does. In 1997, which is now uh, 17 years ago, how, how old were you? Um, I was in my 20s, early 20s. Um, so, yeah, I was working in an alternative weekly in Montreal, um, not that long out of university, and was the arts editor there. When you are in your young adulthood, and especially your teenage years, you construct a huge amount of your identity out of cultural signifiers. Um, you know, whether it's mods versus rockers or, you know, uh, hip-hop heads versus pop music fans or, you know, whether it's people that like rap music and hate R&B. Um, you know, it, it is a huge part of who you are, maybe just because you haven't filled that space in with actual life experiences yet. Yeah, maybe that's part of it. I mean, I think the interesting thing and the the contradiction that's really hard to tease out is the question of how much of that is an internal experience and how much of it is a social experience, right? And one of the things that sociological research tends to show is that these patterns fall consistently along lines of class and income and education and demographic influences like that in a way that would seem kind of suspicious if if it were just everybody making up and doing their own thing. It it's really starts to seem like what we are doing is a lot of social signaling and we're trying to tell the world who we are and who we aspire to be and also who we don't want to be. And that's, you know, I think in the book that was became kind of my central concern. And I think a lot of that that mechanism happens really unconsciously. And, you know, I think that... It's a little counterintuitive, you know, if you kind of describe to anybody that notion, there's a real desire to defend yourself against that and say, no, I just like what I like, man. And I th I think it, that if, if you look closely at it, that doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And it's one of the reasons that I think, you know, and I think it's natural as you get older to start to see those things and those patterns and become more introspective about them. But I think we also pass through that phase and leave it behind without quite sometimes realizing what it's meant. Let's get down to brass tacks. And by <laughs> brass tacks, I'm referring specifically to Celine Dion. Sure. Um, she seems to, she sort of appears out of whole cloth as a kind of representation of down the middle uh, adult pop banality in, you know, the mid 2000s or whatever, right? Like she just represents neutral in a lot of ways. Um, but in fact, she comes from a really specific uh, cultural milieu that you describe, and I found your descriptions of it really fascinating in the book. Can you tell me a little bit about, first, about what kind of Quebecer she is and why that matters in the cultural landscape of Quebec and, and sort of the world that she came up in as a, as a child star? Yeah, I think that Celine kind of comes out of the period when Quebec was undergoing enormous change. You know, she was sort of born into that world because in the 60s and 70s, Quebec went from being what was kind of, you know, it sounds funny to say, but kind of an oppressed minority culture in which 
you know, English bankers basically ruled the province and, and the Catholic Church was kind of complicit in keeping this kind of French working class in its place. And in the 60s, Quebec went through what's called the Quiet Revolution, in which the French majority really rose up and said, we want to become masters of our own destiny. So all of that was happening in Céline's childhood. And one of the things, and she really, you know, came from a sort of outer suburban, almost rural, small area in a big Catholic family with, you know, a dozen brothers and sisters. And she, in some ways, straddles that divide. So it as a child, she started sort of singing in her family restaurant, singing, you know, hymns and traditional French songs. And her family got the idea that there might be something in this and, and in, introduced her to managers. And so in the 80s, when she was kind of becoming a child star, she was transitioning out of this old Quebecois traditional entertainment culture into the sort of new globalized entertainment culture that you know, record labels and the like were creating alliances in Quebec with that. And, it's, and as an adult, she's become this representative of the modern, commercialized, globally savvy Quebec. And that's kind of the journey that she's gone through. And I think that we end up seeing this kind of popped out of nowhere person with these weird kind of variety show, old fashioned entertainment values. And it's in some ways because she comes from this place that that modernized, you know, relatively almost overnight um, in, in a way that's not familiar to the rest of us. And the other thing that's interesting about that is Quebec, because it sort of went through that kind of revolution, revolutionary transition and because French working class identity was kind of the basis of that. It's also, you know, and partly maybe because it's French and, and you know, has connections to France in these ways. It's also a much more left wing place than most of North America. And, you know, and, and the, the separatist party is basically a socialist party. So you have her representing this kind of odd mix of traditional family values and, you know, bubbling out of her mouth now and then these these oddly progressive points of view. You know, I, I talk in the book about um, her, the interview that she did on Larry King in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. And, and she kind of both sort of became hysterical, crying over over it and also started sort of arguing for the rights of black New Orleans people to like loot shops. We actually have a, a clip of that interview, um, which was, you know, quite the talked about thing at the time. Let's take a listen to it. You know, some people are stealing and they're making a big deal out of it. Oh, they're stealing 20 pair of jeans or they're stealing television sets. Who cares? They're not going to go too far with it. Maybe those people are so poor. Some of the people who do that, they're so poor. They've never touched anything in their lives. Let them touch those things for once. The main thing right now, it's not the people who are stealing. It's the people who are left there and they're watching helicopters flying over their heads and they're praying. How come it's so easy to send planes in another country to kill everyone in a second to destroy lives? I mean, I think when that happened, there was, you know, there was a lot of making fun of Celine Dion for, like, acting crazy. And she, you know, she goes on, she sings at Larry King's behest. Larry King demands that she sing, and she go, she goes for it. Um... But you write very eloquently in the book about it as a kind of solidarity moment that is not all that different in her way from 
Kanye West's famous George Bush doesn't care about black people. Yeah, I mean, as I was saying, you know, that connection with Louisiana and that that connection with the francophone fact in North America, you know, that's that's a that's a long history of connection. And the aphorism in Quebec is basically when they're trying to pass language laws and and strengthen the culture in all of these ways is that they don't want to go the way of Louisiana. So there, that's forward in mind for a Quebecois person and. The, in the in the moment of that tragedy, I think she felt that kind of instant connection, and you know that sort of strange uh, militant pacifism that came out there in that moment as well. All of these things, you know, do kind of have cultural roots with her. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is the music critic Carl Wilson. His book is called "Let's Talk About Love: Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste." He wanted to find out how does taste work, and so he immersed himself in the let's just say, easy-to-hate music of Miss Celine Dion. One of the things that you did in the process of writing this book, um, now almost 10 years ago, was seek out Celine Dion fans in an effort to engage with how and why they loved Celine Dion. First of all, who demographically are the people who, who bought you know, 30 million copies of uh, the album that you wrote about? Well, it's hard to generalize, right, because it is 30 million albums. Um, The sales statistics and the the record company info that I was able to obtain does indicate that it, you know, skews to women, um, skews to older women and older men. Um, There was actually a fairly recent survey that... um, I want to say Billboard, but I think it was another music magazine that did about who sort of gets named as Americans' favorite musician, and and that falls usually according to age range. And once you get into a certain seniority level, Celine Dion actually wins the prize like against the Beatles, right? You know, against all comers. So there is that tendency. Um, her listeners also skew to slightly lower income. Um, lower middle class on average, again, not, you know, not not excluding lots and lots of other people. But when they're crunching the numbers, that's what they get. Um, and then there's the kind of global influence. You know, I found that a lot of the people who were the most active people in, in fan circles, on message boards, that kind of thing, who I who I talked to, um, there tended to be a lot of first-generation immigrants. And I think that's partly because she, her audience is globalized enough that even in America, there's that attention, that connection to the rest of the world through her that people feel. The demographic groups that you describe as being the demographic groups in which Celine Dion is the strongest in terms of sales and fandom are also, I think, not coincidentally, the demographic groups that have the least power in terms of the manufacturing of coolness. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so not surprising on some level, right? So the least cool artist is loved by the least cool people. This is how we think things work. Um it's only when you actually consider what those things entail, all of those characteristics that I was just rhyming off, that to realize that that also translates to a genuine lack of social status and genuine lack of power on a lot of levels. And, and so the way that that 
those taste assumptions and that that system of cool ties into a, a, a more serious kind of political situation and ethical situation is is kind of the striking thing about it. Meaning that coolness, as we define it, has built into it um, what could be described as, you know, sexist, classist, um, to some extent racist uh, assumptions. Yeah, exactly. And it also has built into it its own defenses of those things because, of course, it glorifies um, cultural otherness in terms of, you know, the the dangerous working class or or sort of proletarian biker or, and and the cool black guy. All of these kinds of things, you know, are built right into it. So it it creates a, a hall of mirrors that makes it seem like it's embracing and and tolerant and and interested in difference. But in fact, the kind of differences that it's interested in are pretty narrow and they still exclude most people. When you talk to actual people that like Celine Dion, um, and you talk to actual people who love Celine Dion, what kinds of stories did they tell you, and, and how did those stories affect you? Well, there was a pretty wide range of, of things. Um, I talked to a drag queen and um, a lesbian cultural critic, who uh, both, uh, both of whom talked a lot about Celine as, as part of the group of kind of divas who... Um, queer culture has found as the as kind of emblems of an emotional performance that is i they identify with and that also kind of speaks for them on some level and then on the other hand you know i talked to young um asian immigrants who saw her both as someone they could identify with emotionally in terms of her family ties and her romanticism, but also as a model of, of a successful working life, as somebody who, you know, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made a global success of themselves. And, you know, a couple of those people were even pretty inspired by Celine to want to pursue music or filmmaking and that kind of thing. You know, they, they, they drew that kind of energy out of her. After a break... Carl Wilson will talk about the time he actually went to experience Celine in person in, where else? Las Vegas. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Since you're listening to Bullseye, I think you'll really like NPR's newest podcast, Hidden Brain. On the latest episode, Shankar Vedantam looks at the consequences of near misses and the surprising way these losses can motivate us. Plus, country singer Casey Musgraves joins Shankar to talk about her new album and play a game of Mad Scientist. Don't miss it. Listen now on the NPR One app, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, L.A., Boston, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Philly, D.C. Bullseye is going on the road this November for our world tour of several American cities. See live interviews, music, comedy, and more. Check out bullseyetour.com for more information and get your tickets starting Friday, September 25th. That's bullseyetour.com. See you there. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Carl Wilson about his book, Let's Talk About Love, Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. It's an expanded version of his 2007 book. You went to see Celine Dion. Did you have fun? I ended up having fun. I I had a bit of a rough road into it. Um, I'd never been to Las Vegas before, 
um, and sort of thought I knew what I was getting myself into, but we actually found it. I went by myself, perhaps <laughs> in error, and um, was kind of camped out in a hotel room there and you know, not particularly into wandering around gambling um, and very quickly sort of felt like I had isolated myself on kind of this little cultural island while people were partying around me and all I was doing was kind of waiting around to see Celine Dion. So by the time I got there, I was a little bit exhausted and emotionally frayed and the production values of the show seemed kind of crazily over the top at first, all this kind of laser image projection and um, huge set pieces moving in and out and this troop of dancers doing you know kind of cheesy vegas c also kind of circusy quebecois um, performance because cirque du soleil is kind of cooperated with her in the development of the show it was quebec's other largest cultural export um but actually as the kind of collective energy around the songs and getting into the mood around me and and i kind of started feeding on on, on my you know, fellow audience members and started to get into it. And it actually kind of ended up feeling moved by the end, you know, this, that those songs in some ways, you know, as much as I had been playing her music around the apartment myself and listening to it on headphones, there's something about being kind of confined in a theater and forced to train your attention on something that, that can kind of bring you to a place with music. And, you know, I think we all know this from live experiences where that you, that you might not otherwise be able to access. I think that one of the distinctive things about going to see Celine Dion in concert in a group of a few thousand other concert goers that you would not feel when you're a music critic at, at home listening on headphones or on your, you know, Macintosh stereo t- system, um, is one of the things you write about in the book, which is that Celine Dion's music has a tendency towards um, having a collective or democratic or populist values in a way that most popular music that's valorized by um, critics doesn't. You know, its its goal is to celebrate what we have in common rather than what sets us apart. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's, you know, she's kind of the everyday writ large, right? And everything about her persona, and that's the other thing, seeing her live is, you know, as you probably are aware from seeing her in video, you know, just her personality is not especially polished and being in a theater <laughs> with her yet there's there's a, a much deeper appreciation of the charm of that of the kind of the kind of of unpretentious self-presentation but very generous kind of outreach to people that she has in it and at a distance and cubs off is a little phony but a little closer up it starts to seem like no 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 that's a real genuine person doing their best and trying to make a connection with all the people here who love her music. This morning, my producer, Julia, sent me a, a very popular viral video called Celine Dion is Amazing that stitches together sort of off moments from her concert DVDs and behind-the-scene DVDs. And it is her just making funny faces and air-humping and just being like a silly goofball, like an awkward, silly goofball. <laughs> Who let Celine up? 
Oh my god. And I, I imagine that a fair number of people who send this video to each other are being like, Look how dumb Celine Dion is. But actually I find it really charming. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what a fun what a fun lady. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that's the intention of that video, right? It's you know, it's it's called Celine Dion is amazing, and it means it, and it's a little tongue in cheek, but it's also at the end really trying to make a case. It's funny, the guy who made that, Rich Derviak, is a blogger for um, Gawker now, but at the time just was independent. Um, he made that after reading the book, and that was kind of my favorite review the book ever got was this incredible <laughs> supercut that he'd made, which I felt like, oh, this says everything. I was trying to say about how Celine Dion had won my heart. How do you feel differently about your writing about pop music um, in 2014 relative to where you were at when you were writing this book in the mid-2000s and also relative to where you were at in the mid to late 90s at the beginning of your career when Celine Dion first emerged as the sort of counterpoint to the indie rock that I'm sure you you were rocking out to? I mean, I think when I started writing about music, I saw my function primarily as wanting to draw people's attention to great things that I that nobody was paying attention to, and that was that was kind of my initial motivation. And then, as the writing develops, and you know, and it, and I think in all of this, it's important to realize that in many ways, this practice is just a is just a vector for writing for me. It's, you know, I was writer first and, and a critic very much second. Um, so you start to want to complicate your arguments and you start to want to um, look deeper and dig deeper. And so at that point, I think I that's when I got a little deeper into the game of differentiation and the, the, the game of being able to take a good shot at something popular and 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 bring it down became part of the pleasure too. So all of those things were kind of the young immature stuff and and writing the book was kind of the culmination in some ways of a process of coming to a very different kind of writing in which I think that what I'm doing is trying to um create a conversation and a dialogue around cultural objects almost as as the as the the impetus or the conversation piece around which we can talk about life in in all kinds of ways and talk about society in all kinds of ways and having done this kind of case study with Celine was in some ways a way for me to try and find um and broaden my voice that way and and try to personalize things a little bit i think that once you realize that there's no solid unshifting vantage point from which to talk about this, you realize that you have to be your own vantage point and that you have to share that with the reader. You have to kind of, you have to kind of make yourself um, a more honest player in the game. And so, and so when I, so I, you know, I try to write that kind of essayistic kind of personal criticism now as much as I can and try and, and try and be sort of more one-on-one with the reader than I used to and and avoid that kind of speaking from the mountaintop kind of voice of authority. Do you, as a celebrated music critic and, uh, you know, the the house music critic at at Slate, uh, among other postings, have a line on Celine Dion's recordings with Phil Spector or Timbaland? 
No, no. I, I keep hoping that someone will read the book and be like, oh, I know where those tapes are and, and send me a <laughs> surreptitious um, email and, and, and swear me to secrecy. So perhaps I'm just pretending here. Um, but no, I've, I've never gotten to hear them. I have this, this Phil Spector tapes in particular. I'm dying to hear. To what extent did your perspective on Celine Dion change in the course of writing this book? And, and has it changed further in the seven years since? Um, I think my perspective on Celine changed a lot over the course of writing the book. I wouldn't say that I became a big fan. And I think in some ways that's not the goal, right? You're not trying to look into stuff that other people are into so that you can become them. You're just trying to understand them. But I I did form an attachment to some of the music and I really formed an attachment to her as a figure. You know, I really feel an ongoing affection for her and and I think in the years since the original edition came out, that's only increased since I've had to spend a lot of um, minutes like these talking about her with people. Um, so, you know, we're, we're kind of buddies now. We're kind of allies. And um, and I continue to follow what she's doing with interest. You know, it's it's she's in a whole different phase of her career than the one I was writing about. She's kind of in that kind of poignant phase where she's not yet kind of an oldies act. But she's somebody who a little bit is 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 past her her time period, past her past her sort of pop peak, and there's always that struggle that people go through to think about how they should update their sound or their image or redefine themselves or not redefine themselves or stick to their stick to their roots, stick to the things that their fans love them for. And you know, Celine will always be fine because you know. It, to this day in 2014, if she goes out on a world tour, it's the biggest grossing world tour of the year. That's that's how enormous she is. But but she doesn't have the pop currency that she once did. And so I, I kind of feel this kind of bittersweet um, sense watching her career and wondering where it's heading from here. Carl Wilson's book is called Let's Talk About Love, Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. It's an expanded version of his 2007 book, which had the same main title, but the subtitle was A Journey to the End of Taste, which I guess, Carl, maybe you reconsidered because it made Celine Dion fans make, uh, feel bad? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the new version has essays uh, exploring the issues that were raised in the original book by, um, by look, beloved critics and powers, for example— um, great writers like Nick Hornby, and uh, even an essay from uh, James Franco, who uh, who talked about the book on the red carpet of the MTV Music Awards, I think it was. And uh, it was actually the Oscars. The Oscars. The <laughs> he was actual... talking to MTV, but he was at the Oscars. There you go. Uh, I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty rock solid. <laughs> um, and the book actually, in part, inspired. Uh, James Franco's turn on General Hospital. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Carl Wilson, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was a joy. Thanks a lot for having me, Jesse. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. I've written down the information So please, Mr. DJ, read my dedication. I'll forgive you if you haven't heard the genre. Lowrider Oldies is its own specialized world. 
It was a series of records I loved. They were on tape, too, and 8-track. I used to buy them at the thrift store, called East Side Story. The covers have these pictures of old-school cholos and their girlfriends looking ice-cold in front of these gorgeous cars. The albums are red, white, and green, Chicano colors, and they're hand-lettered in this drippy font like an old gang tag. They look almost homemade, but beautiful. It's not really a time period that binds these songs on the East Side Story albums together. It's more like a feeling. Every song's something you can cruise to or play on the stereo when you're parked and your doors are open and you're talking to a girl. Something about love and yearning. Something low and slow. You could write a poem from the names on the backs of these records. The Galahads, the Young Hearts, Royal Chessmen, the Tempries, the Sun Glows, the Love Lights, Brenda and the Tabulations. I love that one, Brenda and the Tabulations. There are some famous tracks here. La La Means I Love You by the Delphonics, At Last by Etta James, Mostly, though, these are songs that were kept alive by guys looking for music that matched their cars. I live in L.A. now, on the east side. There are a couple of old schoolers who still park their cars up on Figueroa Boulevard Friday and Saturday nights. They don't roll that deep, but they cruise in twos and threes and set up shop outside the tattoo parlor. These guys, they're coming up on 60 or so now, but their khakis stay pressed. Their Pendletons are still crisp as they were 25 or 30 years ago, and their ink still reps the hood they came up in, even if a hot yoga studio just moved in there. When I walk past those old dudes hanging on to this old world, I don't know. I'm comforted. I mean, shoot, it's Friday night. Stereo's up. These guys are just taking it low and slow. That's my outshot. come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Ibarian X. Perello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to TJ Liebgott at MCS Recordings in Toronto, Ontario, Canada for engineering help on our Carl Wilson interview. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or open up whatever program you use to listen to podcasts. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. Give it a try. Pop Rocket. Find it wherever you download podcasts. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.